is on the way. Today, spring will come in the morning to lift your head and bring you home. Today's reading is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, and then 9 through 11. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with one accord in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. chapter 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Sire Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after 
He had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Hezbon, and at Edri, had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. To read the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 1 just took me 1 minute and 53 seconds. Where'd your mind go? One of these phrases likely made the inner dialogue. What in the world is she doing? Or how much longer is she going to do this? Or maybe, I thought we were in Nehemiah. And then finally, oh, thank goodness, she's done. One minute and 53 seconds. Now imagine getting up around 5.30 a.m. I lost some of you right there. To make it here by around 6 a.m. And then imagine scripture being read over you for six, six hours until 12 in the afternoon. That's about 180 times as long as I just read aloud moments ago. Are you coming back to church the next week? <laughs> I can hardly parent effectively for six hours. It's difficult for me even to sleep some nights for six hours. These days, what has the power and the ability to hold your attention for six hours straight? For some, the only activity that pops to mind is breathing. Followed closely by binge watching Netflix or perhaps two rounds of golf. I think it's clear that 
that in order for something to be able to hold our attention for six hours straight, we must be really captivated by that thing. I mean, we must really love it or be intrigued by it or be engrossed in it. It must really fill us up some way, somehow, because your attention cannot be held for six hours by just anything. But here in Nehemiah 8 that Lori read for us, verse 3, Ezra, who had been in Jerusalem for 13 years by this point. Ezra, the contemporary, the companion to the book of Nehemiah. We almost cannot go through the book of Nehemiah without talking about Ezra. Ezra had been in Jerusalem doing what? Well, if we go back to Ezra chapter 7, we're told, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra, who'd been studying and teaching and shepherding the people of God, he gets up to read on the first day of Tishri which is the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. The text here in Nehemiah 8, it doesn't explicitly name the feast, but if we turn back to Leviticus chapter 23, we see it. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest. A sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work but present a food offering to the Lord. Keep that in mind. Present a food offering to the Lord. Our Jewish brothers and sisters recognize this as Rosh Hashanah. It's the first day of, of the new year. But Ezra gets up on a bema. If any of you know the, the podcast bema, it's a platform. Ezra gets up on bema, kind of like this picture here. As you can imagine, all these people are gathered. We're told how many people are assembled here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 7. And if you go to the next slide, the picture, here Ezra is kind of on this raised wooden platform with steps that later synagogues would model after this sort of structure from which the teachers would instruct the people of God. Not so unlike this platform here upon which teachers and preachers teach people in the congregation. Ezra gets up and he reads the book of the law of Moses. And some scholars think it's the entire Pentateuch, the first five books, which would likely have taken closer to something like 15 hours. So maybe it wasn't the whole thing. Perhaps it was just numbers in Deuteronomy some form of God's law to his people. And not only does he read for six hours, but even more surprisingly, chapter 8, verse 3, all the people listened attentively. Attentively. For six hours. That tells me something, church. That tells me that they must have been really captivated by the book of the law. They must have really loved it or been intrigued by it or been engrossed in it. And you know what this text stirs in me, Mars. 
I want to love the law of God like that. I want the church to love the law of God like that. I want the body of Christ in America to love the law of God like that. So much so that we could hear the law of God, words from God to us, the people of God through scripture for six hours and we are wanting more. But the truth is, I'm restless a minute 53 in. We're in week four now of this series. If you're joining us for the very first time in the book of Nehemiah. And at this point in the text, church, the wall is complete. Building's done. Chapter 6, verse 15, tells us that the wall was complete on the 25th of Elo, which was about August, September time frame, after 52 days. Quick note here. You've heard us talk about how much Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prayed leading up to getting to Jerusalem for close to four months. He prayed and fasted, which means Nehemiah prayed for more than four times the amount of time it took to build. He prayed longer than they built, which is a separate sermon for another day, but I just wanted to point that out. And if you look at the calendar, the point of chapter 8 only happens six days later. So from Elul to Tishri, from the 25th day to the first day of the seventh month, we've only had about six days time that has passed for the people to settle in to their new digs. And this tells me that where the work of building is finished, the work of being formed as a people continues that our formation in relationship to who God is is not complete based on what we build with our hands. The work continues with our hearts. And as a people, we are tested. Our attention is tested. Our desires are tested. And part of what we see here in the text is how the exiles who've returned are being formed again in the presence of God's law. The bricks are done. It's the people's turn. It's our turn. Our turn. And if we're going to become a people who desire God's revelation and want it enough to the point it captivates our attention, I'm sure there's so many things we, we could talk about, but there were two details at this part in Nehemiah in the text that captivated me, and I want to talk about them. If we are going to be a people who is formed to love God's law in a renewed way, We've got to pay attention to two things that the text points out for us. The first is this. Who is present matters. Who's present matters. Think about the last couple of gatherings you attended 
where there were more than a handful of people present. Think about a backyard barbecue, a concert, a family dinner, a conference. Some of y'all know that if you are hosting, let's just say a family dinner, and that relative, we know that relative, decides to come to family dinner, the whole mood changes, am I right? Everything is going fine and dandy until if that relative or that neighbor shows up. The environment shifts. Some of y'all are sitting real close to that person for whom the environment shifts. Don't look at them. Just know they're probably thinking about you too. If we pick up a few clues here from the text, we'll see the same is true of this scene. Don't miss this. The text says, all the people assembled. All the people assembled. If you look at verse 3, this is a gathering of the entire community of men, women, and all who could understand. This likely included children, absent maybe the tiny babies and toddlers. Everyone was gathered. You have to understand, if the law of God was read in the temple, who was allowed only? Men. So we can't lose the fact that this is a gathering of all the people present in this place. We have to understand, too, the crowd also likely included any non-Israelites who the Israelite exiles had married. Okay, so kind of stepping into the, the purity conversation. And God's like, I want you to be a people set apart for me. The crowd likely included non-Israelites and Israelites who married one another. But no one was left out if they had the ability to understand. And it's beautiful if you read the text. In verse 7, we encounter 13 Levites who were named. And I spared Lori having to read these 13 names to us this morning. Who were moving around the crowd. So you have to picture it. If I called 13 of you up onto the platform right now, there were 13 other men. People who were passing the mic, if you will, around the text, reading the law of God. But then there were 13 other people moving throughout the crowd, making sure that every single person, all in the assembly, couldn't just understand language barrier-wise, but who could interpret and understand how to live the text out. It was a beautiful display of community, making sure in between texts, that people actually understood and could receive and could soak in and can marinate on what was happening in that part of the law. You know what this reminds me of here at Mars Hill? I don't know if she's here, I think she's on vacation, but Trace DeCoco, who is on our staff, a fantastic staff member, one time she came to our pastoral staff and she said, hey, before you preach on a Sunday, could you email me your sermon? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the sermon that you or Tim or Kyle or, or Denise, whoever's preaching, 
I'm going to take that sermon and I'm going to figure out a way that for those adults who attend Embrace, our ministry here where we say, you might have a different kind of ability, but you are able and you are welcome to be part of this community. She takes that sermon and she crafts it in such a way that the people who are differently abled in our community might understand God's word each and every Sunday. You may not know that that's happening, but Trace is like one of the 13 who moves throughout the community and makes sure people understand the word of God. It's beautiful. All the people were assembled. But the other thing you have to understand that meant that all, even those who were unclean, and excluded were there. How do we know that? If you were here last week, you know that Tim left off way back in chapter five. We are, we are very, we are skimming so many chapters right now. Way back in chapter five, the question is beckoned, what happened to the other half of chapter five all the way now through chapter eight? Part of what we see in seven, the chapter right before where we, we picked up the reading this morning is a list of exiles. It's a genealogy, if you will. Chapter 7 tells us there are over 50,000 people, if you remember that picture, 50,000 people, if you count them, included in the all. This is a huge crowd. However, in chapter 7, verse 64, we see a detail from among the line of priests. Real small. The detail is this, these descendants searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, remember Nehemiah is now governor, the governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food order them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering. Marcel, usually when it comes to a list of names, I just, I give up. I skip those parts. Chronicles, you know. I I skip all the names. But you know what I thought about? I said today, if that kind of law applied Today, original family records for my ancestors would not have been found. And I'm excluded from the sacred food. There are some refugees in our city, in our midst, who probably don't have original family records. Many of us in this room or watching online may not have original family records. They would have been excluded from the sacred food. But I'm convinced that who's included here is possible because of who forfeit their privilege back there. What do I mean? I hope some of y'all have a Bible out because we are all over the place today. It's all text today, Mars Hill. Back in chapter 5, follow me. Back in chapter 5, Nehemiah, as a governor himself, 
He broke a pattern. Tim alluded to this last week. If you were here last week, Tim alluded to this. Nehemiah broke a pattern. Real quickly, Nehemiah 5, verses 14 to 15. When I was appointed to be their governor, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. So Nehemiah, as governor, intentionally made a different decision that put him in a different camp from governor's past. Keep that in mind. Nehemiah had already been leading when we find ourselves here in chapter 8. He had already been leading as one who forfeit his privilege for the sake of God's people. Not because it was the justice campaign du jour. Not because there was something in it for him. Not even because it made him look better than other governors, but because, very specifically, of his reverence for God. Church family, some of us cannot tell the difference between the relevance of our own social status, think governor privilege, and holy reverence of God. And if we cannot tell the difference, the former things, the status and the privilege that we hold on to will overshadow God's reverence and will resist surrendering what God invites us to relinquish. Some of us might have to watch the tape back after this morning is over to hear what I just said again. I'm not going to repeat it. But just understand that Nehemiah knew something about the reverence of God that made it possible for him to say, I willingly give up the privilege that is mine in order to, three chapters later, be able to lead people into the hearing of God's word. Had Nehemiah held on to his gubernatorial perks in chapter 5. The people couldn't possibly have assembled of one accord in chapter 8. Had he held on to his privilege in chapter 5, we're told that the people assembled of one accord. That couldn't possibly have happened in chapter 8. Church, us giving our positional status and privilege away isn't just about us. It clears a way for not just our own kingdoms to be built, but for the full formation of God's kingdom to take place in us. The problem is, personal opinion, we can't talk about privilege because we've isolated it to conversations about politics. When all throughout scripture, from Nehemiah to Jesus himself in Philippians 2, we see what's positively possible 
in the fulfillment of kingdom flourishing when privilege is handed over. This is why we have to talk about racism, sexism, and ableism in the church because if we don't, we actually don't have all the people assembled of one accord. We can't. We can't talk about those things. We don't have the, all the people assembled of one accord. Who's present matters because God's revelation isn't reserved to our chosen political party. God's revelation isn't reserved to our socioeconomic class, to our physical ability, or any other way that we or the culture around us might like to slice and dice and divide us. So one of my questions for us this morning is, how might we, how might you open up your life and even risk the privilege that you and I enjoy currently to ensure that all, yes, all, who are part of the community might encounter the word of the living God? Second detail that might draw us deeper into this text. Encourage us, it encourages us to look more sincerely at the place of revelation. The place of revelation. We're told in Nehemiah 8 chapter 1 that the assembly is in the square before the water gate. Not the scandal. I know some of you are like, oh have triggers from your childhood. Um, not that water gate, the actual water gate. Wait a minute, why not host this assembly at the temple? Why aren't they at the temple? Ezra hosted something similar if you read, again, companion book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra did something similar in chapter three, but the altar was present. Why aren't they at the temple? Why are they at the water gate? Well, again, recall the last week we talked about the function of these gates, how the ten gates weren't just entry and exit points that made the city more vulnerable to attack because that was true. Usually cities only had one or two entry points. Jerusalem had ten. But how these gates were also posts where the poor and the outcasts of society would gather and hope for provision. Where goods and services were exchanged for those who were on the margins. The water gate, there's a picture here. There's, this is just like a, a rendition, it's not actual footage. But the water gate was on the east side. If you see where that dot is, that green dot, it was on the east side of the wall, close to Gaihan Spring, which gave access to the main water source in the city. So what we have here is an assembly gathered at a water source, the source of life. An assembly 
that includes the least of society, the most vulnerable amongst them. Remember, the wall had been completed and people had been settling in already six days earlier, which means those who were less fortunate, those who didn't have as much, those who were on the margins, in those six days, I imagine, the provision gap had already widened. Those who were able to settle in did. But those who weren't able were probably still lingering at the gates. It's here at the Watergate where Ezra, who'd been teaching for years, finally comes on the scene and reads the law to the people at their request. They ask Ezra to come and do this. And I imagine in scholars think, the people haven't heard the law read aloud in a long time. Can imagine if they were in Babylon, the law wasn't read. If they're following the tradition of the Feast of Tabernacles, they wouldn't have heard the law read for at least seven years. So the law of God is reaching their ears from Ezra's mouth as these 13 other men are walking the congregation. It's reaching their ears in a new way. Can you imagine, church, not hearing God's word, not hearing scripture for that long? Can you imagine what it must be like or what it could be like to go such a long period of time not having heard God's intention for you as a people, God's promises to you as a people, God's hopes for you as a people, God's requirements for you as a people, and then to hear them finally read to you aloud. What author David Kidner writes fascinates me about the location of the assembly. He says, the law itself insisted that its voice must not be confined to the sanctuary, but heard in the house and in the street. The entire assembly gathered at the source of life <laughs> where this water is flowing. They hear the law read after such a long time and their response it's understandable, I think. They weep. They weep. Scholars note that the people weep because upon hearing the law read afresh, they realize that their actions haven't been lived out according to God's requirements and statutes. There's a sense of remorse now hearing the law read so long after they've heard it before. So much has happened. This conviction is similar to when Josiah, King Josiah, hears the words of the book of the law in 2 Kings 22. If you go back to 2 Kings, he tears his robes. Because now that Jerusalem is built, now that the city is reconstructed, Mars Hill, the work of reconstructing the hearts of the people must now begin. It never just stops at what we build with our hands. Where the presence of God's law, God's words through scripture for us, God's people, meet us. There's heart work 
that needs to happen too. What's fascinating is it's the same law, but the people are in a different place. It's the same law, but the people have come through exile and have rebuilt amidst hardship and opposition and intimidation. Chapter 6 is a doozy. That's good drama for you. We're not even going to talk about it. But Nehemiah faces some stuff in chapter 6. It's the same law, but it's meeting them in a new place, both physically here at the water gate where all can meet, not at the temple, but also situationally and contextually as a people who are no longer rebellious but contrite. It's the same law, but it's meeting them in a way that captivates them and captures them, forming them in a way where they've built something that's part of their story, but it's not the whole story. And when I think about us, Marcel, today, I think about how God is faithful and consistent and true, how scripture never changes, but much like the people of God who are in a new place coming home from exile, rebuilding the walls, they find themselves in a new place too. And I think for those of us who call Mars Hill home, we've been coming here for quite a few years in recent past, we think we know there's something different situationally as well. We're not the same church that we were 10, 20 years ago. But where I find so much hope and encouragement is that the law of God, the, the words of God, who God is and longing to encounter God's people doesn't change even if we do. And that is really good news. The law of God, who God is, the faithfulness of God doesn't change even if you do. Even if you are inconsistent. Even if your money is funny right now. Even if you're not getting along with your relatives. Even if you are so steeped in sin you could hardly bring yourself to church this morning. Even when the people of God find themselves in a different place contextually. Part of what I think moves the people here in chapter 8 is they're realizing the law of God has not changed. Who God is has not changed. The place of revelation matters. The place of revelation matters. Some of you are back here at church for the first time in a new season in years. Some of you have been coming for so long. But here's what I want to ask you. Are you allowing the word of scripture, how God longs to encounter you, to move you, to find you, to intercept your life? I read Nehemiah's words after the people weep. He says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you see how who's present matters again? The gathered crowd, everybody understood the words that were read to them afresh. They understand that these words now give rise to their joy. The people who couldn't eat are now invited to feast because all are there. 
whose present matters because all got to be invited to remember God's provision and to enter into thanksgiving, not just for the building, but for who they were becoming. And the words God gave to God's people met them in their particular place for a particular time. And the people were invited to find joy and comfort in God despite what they had done. Church, whatever is grieving you, wherever you find your point of dissatisfaction, wherever you find dissatisfaction with God's church, my words are the same to you today as they were back then. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord, who God is, is faithful and consistent, whose steadfast love endures forever, is your strength. I think of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. He tested, he's tested in the wilderness. He goes through hardship, intimidation, a plot to catch him off guard, just like the people have come through in recent chapters. But then what happens? He stands up to read in the synagogue, as was his custom, likely on the same sort of platform that Ezra stood on. And he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to fulfill all that the law has promised. And in that, we find our joy. So before we go to the table, I want to invite you to do two things this week. If you've not been reading along, continue reading in Nehemiah. But perhaps some of us are walking around with something convicting and heavy on our hearts. And I just want to invite you as we receive from the table, receive from the feast, we have the prayer walls available. Perhaps today's the day you write down your confession and you, you place it in the prayer wall for those, the rest of us in the community to hold with you, for our staff to hold with you. But a second invitation is to find a piece of text this week, a piece of scripture that you might find joy in as the word of God, Jesus, the word of God encountering you this week. For me, it's Psalm 119, 105 to 112. There's a song that's steeped in that as well that I'll be listening to this week. But may we as a people of God be recaptivated by God longing to encounter us through text where we are right now for such a time as this. And as a community, may that lead us into further generosity for all who might gather here. So as we come to the table, I say to you, my soul, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you pray with me now? How right and a good and joyful thing in all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, we pray that as we come to this table, you would reinvigorate us and you would captivate our attention anew as we receive freely and enter into your joy is our strength, regardless of what we came in here this morning with, God. Would you recapture our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to what you are doing, and as we rebuild, would you also rebuild us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. And in the same way, he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now, church... We come to the table and, and we proclaim the mystery of our faith together, not just with those who are in this room, but with all who profess, with all who are gathered as the people of God here in West Michigan or wherever you are online and around the world. So we recite and rehearse this mystery together, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So receive who you are the body of Christ. <laughs> 